Hello, it's Richard McLean-Smith here again. Before we begin this week's episode, I just want to give another shout-out to a new show that I've been producing. It's called Rescue and is hosted by survival expert Donnie Dust. Rescue takes you deep into the heart of the world's most astonishing rescue stories, told by the people who were there. All of them are absolute heroes, and it's been a real honour to bring their stories to you. Rescue is out now on all the usual platforms. Now, back to Unexplained. The girl relaxed back into the short alpine grass and stared up at the sky. It was early summer in this high valley of the Himalayas, surrounded by towering snow-capped mountain peaks, topped with a deep blue sky made all the darker by the thin air. The sparse grasses were dotted with wild flowers and a herd of yaks, cows, sheep and goats grazed contentedly nearby. Chetan Tamang, the daughter of a Sherpa family from the village of Lang Tang in Nepal, had been sent to tend the family's herd in the high pastures over the summer, a task she'd performed alone every year since she was around eight years old. It was a remote spot, because her father always insisted on taking their animals well beyond the usual grazing areas used by other families in the village in order to find the best grass. She was staying in the family Yak Kirka, a simple dwelling of stone walls, which the family re-roofed every spring with strips of bamboo specially woven together for the purpose. Born in this very spot, the girl was almost completely at ease, alone with the animals, surrounded by the immense mountain peaks of the Himalayas. She was afraid of only one thing, falling asleep. Her parents had told her time and time again that snow leopards stalked the surrounding slopes. If she saw one, Chetan would have to make plenty of noise. The leopards mostly avoided people and were easy to frighten away. But if she fell asleep, a leopard could slink close to the herd and quickly make off with one of the animals. And the family couldn't afford to lose even a single baby yak or goat. But there was something else that Chetan was wary of too. Growing up in her home village of Langtang, Chetan had been told many stories by her grandmother about the strange creatures that were also said to stalk the surrounding mountains and pastures. They were said to be huge, around 10 to 12 feet tall, and covered in long brown hair, so dense that it was sometimes hard to see their eyes. These creatures were extremely strong and powerfully built, and walked on two legs. Apparently not very intelligent, nor speaking any discernible language. Nevertheless, they seemed to understand what humans were saying and sometimes liked to hang around the Sherpa, copying what they were doing. You knew if one or more were in the area because they communicated by a kind of mewling, whistling call. And these creatures could also be very dangerous, sometimes allegedly killing and eating villagers especially small children. The last one that was thought to have lived in the area was said to have been killed when Chetan's father was a small boy. They called it Yete, 
otherwise known as Yeti. You're listening to Unexplained, and I'm Richard McLean Smith. For centuries, the Himalayan people of Nepal, Tibet, Bhutan, India and China have recognised the existence of the Yeti, an anglicised version of the word Yete, which translates roughly to that thing or man-like animal. According to the descriptions, there are several types of Yeti based on size and location. The smallest, sometimes called the Little Yeti, or Ter Ema, live in forested mountain valleys below the snow line, no more than around four feet tall, with reddish-grey hair and pointed sloping heads, they are said to feed on small mammals. Then there are the classic Yete, described as about the height of a young boy, or up to around five feet tall, they too are said to have conical heads and are stocky and ape-like, with short, coarse reddish-brown hair, wide mouths with large teeth and very long arms. Supposedly living in mostly dense Himalayan rhododendron forests at elevations above 14,500 feet, they are most famous for supposedly leaving their tracks in the snow when crossing the mountains from valley to valley. Next, there is the Big Yeti, or Zute. Descriptions of this creature resemble most closely a large bear, reported to live between 13,000 to 15,000 feet above sea level. They are said to walk mainly on four legs, but sometimes bipedally, and are known for their attacks on yaks, which they are said to kill by ferociously grabbing the horns and twisting their necks. And then there are the Nialmo. Living at elevations above 13,000 feet, they are said to be between 10 and 15 feet tall, with enormous conical heads, rumoured to feed on yaks, mountain sheep, and sometimes on humans. It was these terrifying creatures that teenage yak herder Chetan had learned about from her grandmother. According to her, the Yetis, or Nialmo, that used to inhabit the mountains above Langtang, had a bizarre habit. They seemed to like to watch, then try to copy what they saw humans doing. Over the years, the Sherpa people had apparently used this curious habit to gradually kill them off. In one story, several families collected strands of wool from their herds and rolled them into large, uneven grey balls that looked like boulders. Then, they went to the opposite banks of a fast-flowing mountain river and started throwing the fake boulders at each other, pretending to fight. A group of yetis, who were said to have observed this, started to do the same thing, but with real boulders. In the process, they hit and injured their group so badly that they fell into the torrent and were swept away. By the early 1950s, when Chetan's father was around five years old, her grandmother said that there was only one remaining yeti known to be in the area. It seemed to have a particularly aggressive disposition, 
and was rumoured by local villagers to have snatched and eaten several young children. In the high yak pastures above Langtang, this yeti had supposedly been seen periodically by a couple who were staying in their yak kirka with their newborn baby. The simple stone-walled shelter where they lived over the summer months, tending their animals, had no door, just an open entrance. The only way to secure that entrance was to place tree branches across it, not especially secure against an enormously strong creature. Having not seen the yeti for a few weeks, the husband decided to walk down to the village about an eight-hour trek away to fetch much-needed supplies for his family and his herd. He left his wife alone with their baby to tend to the yaks. On such trips, he would typically stay away for a night and come back the next day. But after three days, the man had not returned. Despite her concerns, his wife had no choice but to stay with the animals rather than go looking for him. The following morning, she was busy milking a yak when she heard the baby crying from inside the kirka. Quickly finishing up, she went to tend to it, when to her horror, she supposedly found the yeti who'd been plaguing her family now standing inside the stone dwelling. Not only that, but it was cradling her baby in its arms. Thinking fast, the terrified woman was then said to have taken some water that had been heating over the fire and began washing her hair with it. Just as she'd hoped, the yeti then apparently made gestures which indicated it too would like her to wash its hair. And so the woman did. But instead of using the pan of warm water, she took a can of kerosene instead and poured it over the yeti's head. Then she moved herself closer to the fire and dropped her head down toward the flames, motioning for the yeti to do the same. As Chetan's grandmother explained, when the yeti did as the woman suggested, its head and fur lit up instantly in flames. The yeti ran grunting and snarling from the stone shelter and headed straight towards a nearby river, but died before it could reach the water. The woman grabbed a large sharp knife and watched from a distance until she was sure that the yeti was dead. On reaching its partly charred corpse, she is then said to have sliced the creature open, right down its massive belly. As its stomach ripped open, partially digested remains of human body parts and fragments of clothing spilled out onto the ground around it. Among them, the woman recognised the remains of her husband, The first known Yeti report from the Himalayas, made by a European, was in 1832. Trekker Brian Hodgson was walking through northern Nepal, assisted by local guides, when they all spotted what he said was a large creature, covered in long dark hair, with no tail, and walking on two legs. Hodgson took it to be an orangutan, even though that species 
would have been several thousand miles from its natural Sumatran jungle home. His local guides, however, took the creature to be something else entirely. Frightened, they refused to shoot at it and fled. Hodgson even published a report of the sighting in the Journal of the Asiatic Society of Bengal. It would be another 60 years before the next European sighting of an apparent yeti appeared in print. In 1899, British adventurer Lawrence Waddell, who'd spent around 15 years exploring the region, published his travel book, Among the Himalayas. In it, he recounted coming across enormous footprints in the snow, though his local guides insisted it was some kind of wild man Waddle believed the prints were in fact left by a Himalayan brown bear. Reports of Himalayan wild men reached Europe with increasing frequency as more and more foreigners travelled to the region. Colonel Charles Howard Berry, an Anglo-Irish explorer and botanist, set off to climb the Lakpa Pass early one morning in September 1921. During the trek, he and his party encountered a set of strange footprints which Howard Berry decided had been made by a loping wolf before becoming distorted by the melting snow. But the expedition porters immediately identified them as those of what they called a meter kang mi or man-bear snow creature. On the group's return to Britain, some of the expedition team were interviewed by journalist Henry Newman Newman mistranslated Meter Kangmi as Abominable Snowman. The name would quickly become etched in the mind. In 1925, Greek explorer Nicolaus Tombazi was camping close to the Zimu Gap, a 25,000-foot peak located on a ridge just east to the summit of Kangchenjunga, the third highest peak in the world. One morning, his porters called him from his tent to come and see something. Tombazi duly joined them, where, after initially being blinded by the intense glare of bright sunlight reflecting off the snow, he saw a bizarre figure around 300 yards away, human-like in shape and walking upright. Silhouetted against the blinding snow, Tomazi could not make out what colour it was, but could discern that whatever it was, wasn't wearing any clothes. Every so often, the creature was said to stoop and uproot a rhododendron bush before it wandered eventually from view into some thick scrub. Tombazi apparently went over to where the creature had been and saw footprints that he described as similar in shape to those of a man, but only six to seven inches long. Marks of five toes and an instep were clear. He concluded that the prints were undoubtedly those of a biped, but like the explorers before him, he was sceptical that this was a yeti. He decided instead that he'd seen a wandering hermit or holy man. Although he did confess, that the lack of clothes and bare feet did seem odd at such a high altitude. 
Just over a decade later, another British explorer, John Hunt, was in eastern Nepal. Hunt would later be awarded a knighthood for leading the 1953 expedition in which Tenzing Norgay and Sir Edmund Hillary successfully summited Mount Everest. But on this earlier trip, he was climbing on the northern face of the Zimu Gap, the same area of the Himalayas that Nicolaus Tombazi had been. At a height of 19,000 feet, he came upon two lines of what looked like human footprints. At first, Hunt thought that someone had simply walked over the area before him, but it later emerged that there was no one else on that part of the mountain at the time. The following year, in 1938, the German paramilitary organisation, the SS, briefly went looking for the Yeti, while on the hunt for evidence of a new and strange idea. Back in 1894, Austrian engineer Hans Herbiger was staring up at the moon when he had a sudden epiphany. What if the reason the moon shined so brightly in the sky was because it was made of ice? What if ice, in fact, was fundamental to the existence of the universe? Herbiger was an expert in his field, but had no training in cosmology or physics. It didn't stop him obsessing over his new idea, however. Then one night, he had a dream. It was a vision, he said, of a pendulum swinging back and forth until it broke. He believed it was a sign that he was onto something. Herbiger's idea became known as world ice theory. It asserted essentially that ice was the basic component of all cosmic processes. It eventually gained a significant amount of support, with many in Adolf Hitler's circle, especially enthused by its potential to unseat more widely held ideas about the nature of the universe, which they regarded as inherently Jewish ideas. And so it was in 1938 that German zoologist Professor Ernst Schaefer was sent on a top-secret mission to Tibet by Joseph Goebbels, in part to find evidence of Herbiger's theory. Sadly for them, since the idea was utter nonsense, they found nothing. Schaefer did, however, become intrigued by the Yeti myth while trekking through the icy mountainous terrain. Much like Lawrence Waddell, it was also his conclusion that the creature was most likely just a bear. In the autumn of 1951, English mountaineer Eric Shipton led an expedition to survey possible routes to the summit of Mount Everest from Nepal. The findings from that trip paved the way for the first successful recorded ascent in 1953, but the 51 expedition was to become famous for something else entirely. One afternoon, Tenzing Norgay, Eric Shipton and Michael Ward, who was a surgeon as well as a mountaineer, were descending from a high pass when, at around 16,000 feet, they came across something astounding 
on the lower part of a glacier, a series of footprints in a two to four inch covering of snow. The prints seemed to have descended from another pass that reared up about 3,000 feet above them and were in two groups. One set were fairly indistinct and led out onto the surrounding snowfields. The others were much more detailed. Stunned, Eric Shipton told Ward to place his ice axe alongside them for scale. Then he took out his camera and snapped four photographs. A short time later, one of these photographs, a now iconic image, appeared in newspapers all around the world. It showed a strangely wide, single distinct footprint with Ward's 12-inch long ice axe next to it for scale. The footprint was nearly two times wider than a typical human foot and was about 12 to 13 inches long. Going by the shape of it, the big toe appeared to be broader and shorter than the other rather indistinct toes, of which there seemed to be four or five. They were sunk into the snow much deeper than the footprints made by the booted mountaineers, implying a much heavier creature and did not seem to be human. And even if they were, how or why had someone or something walked through the snow in freezing temperatures without any foot protection? The startled group, keeping a keen lookout for whatever had created them, followed the tracks down the glacier for almost a mile. Two days later, the group were joined by two others who also witnessed the tracks, which by that time had been deformed by the effects of the sun and the wind. One later wrote that despite evidence of obvious weathering by the time he saw the footprints, they were still surprising and inexplicable. As he said later, what it is I don't know, but I'm quite clear that it is no animal known to live in the Himalaya and that it is big. When Eric Shipton's mesmerising photograph was published, it fueled excited speculation in news reports around the world that the Yeti really did exist. The following year, 1952, famed mountaineer Edmund Hillary is deep in his ongoing preparations for making the first ascent of Mount Everest. About 19,000 feet up, while climbing a steep pitch on a high Himalayan pass with two Sherpa climbing partners, one of them, Pemba, suddenly stops and picks something off the rock. Hillary looks on as a greatly animated Pemba shows it to his compatriot, Ang Pemba, who seems similarly impressed. Hillary asks the pair what they are so excited about. Pemba holds it out for Hillary to see. It is a tuft of long black hairs. Thick and coarse, they look more like bristles than anything else. It's yeti hair, he says, with a look of such conviction that, as Hillary later reported, he couldn't help but be impressed by it. A year later, on the 29th of May, 1953, news came from the Himalayas that Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay had reached the summit of Everest. 
when the ensuing media frenzy began to subside, one British newspaper, the Daily Mail, was keen to have another big story from the Himalayas. While supposedly credible footprint evidence of the mysterious Yeti had been found and photographed by reputable mountaineers, there was no concrete proof of the creature itself. So the Daily Mail decided to fund an expedition to find and capture the Yeti. The paper was no stranger to funding quests for mystery creatures. It employed the actor and big game hunter Marmaduke Weatherall to go and find the Loch Ness Monster, as covered in Season 7, Episode 3 of Unexplained, a venture that was to end in failure and ridicule. Undaunted, the Daily Mail spent the equivalent of a million pounds in today's money to assemble and dispatch an expedition to go to the Himalayas. The mission team included mountaineers, ornithologists, zoologists, and 370 porters. They were given tranquilizer guns, a cage, and instructions to catch the Yeti and ship it back to London, alive if possible. The quest would take 15 weeks. Anthropologist and naturalist Charles Stonor was a member of the Daily Mail's Yeti expedition. Arriving ahead of the main team, he was part of a group tasked with finding a suitable location for the expedition's base camp. Having settled for a few nights in the village of Pangboche, 13,000 feet up in the Sulu Kumbu district of Nepal, the team set about gathering testimonies from the local community. Before long, Stoner was approached by a local herdsman named Mingma. As the man went on to explain to him, four years before, he was watching over his yaks in the high pastures above the village when he thought he heard another herdsman in the rocks above him, shouting as if calling out for a lost yak. Despite Mingma shouting back that there were no stray creatures nearby, the strange disembodied cries continued. Moments later, Mingma looked up in horror to see a large hairy creature quickly moving down the mountainside toward him on two legs. Mingma scrambled back to his yak kirka and barricaded the door as best he could. With heavy breaths, he eventually summoned the courage to peer out through a chink in the wall and there, standing right in front of him, was a yeti. Mingma described the creature as being squat and thick-set and about the size of a small man. It was also covered with mostly short, reddish and black hair that was long around the feet and had a high, pointed forehead with a crest of hair on top. Mingma held his breath as the yeti apparently lumbered around in front of the hut. It had long muscled arms with hands that appeared larger and much stronger than a human's and a distinct large flat nose. Then suddenly it turned and stared right at the terrified Mingma. It snarled at him, revealing big sharp teeth. Battling his frightened wits, Mingma looked about the hut for anything he could use as a weapon, 
He grabbed some wood and held it over the small fire, burning in the middle of the room. Then he flung the flaming missile at the Yeti with as much force as he could manage. Thankfully, he said, the frightened creature ran off and did not return. An enwrapped Charles Stoner found Mingma's story quite believable. The man had received no reward for telling it. Indeed, he seemed quite surprised that his listener was so interested. And when Stoner asked him to repeat the story for the benefit of other expedition team members, Mingma did so without any variation in even the smallest of details. Stoner later showed Mingma a watercolour painting depicting an ape-like hairy creature striding through a snowfield. Mingma took one look and instantly rejected it. It was far too monkey-like, he said. The creature he saw was much closer to a human in appearance. This alleged incident was said to have occurred on the high yak pastures above the village of Pang Boche in one of the upper parts of the Dude Cozy Valley. It was in that area that the Daily Mail's expedition made their base camp on a small flat stretch of pasture sandwiched between a swirling mountain torrent and a thick high-altitude forest of pine, birch and rhododendron. A stoner's advanced party made the camp ready for the main group. They were soon approached by another man who told them that he and his wife had encountered a yeti just the previous autumn. Stoner sat enwrapped as his Sherpa assistant translated the man's words for him, and as he told him about the creature that had apparently jumped out at him while he was collecting herbs, Stoner gazed out to the vast snow-peaked mountains that surrounded them on all sides, and dared to dream. The stage was set for the arrival of the main expedition. You've been listening to Unexplained, Season 7, Episode 8, Walking on Snow, Part 1. The second and final part will be released next week on Friday, October 27th. This episode was written by Diane Hope and produced by Richard McLean-Smith. Unexplained is an AV Club Productions podcast created by Richard McLean-Smith. All other elements of the podcast, including the music, are also produced by me, Richard McLean-Smith. Unexplained, the book and audiobook, with stories never before featured on the show, is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Waterstones and other bookstores. Please subscribe to and rate the show wherever you get your podcasts, and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can find out more at unexplainedpodcast.com and reach us online through Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast.